You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been enjoying our little show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, before we begin this week's podcast, I just want to thank Welsh Dave for joining our Patreon this week. Don't forget, Welsh Dave, as a patron, you can come and join us for a live discussion in the post section of our Patreon page um, during each airing, U.S. airing of uh, the new episode of Curse of Oak Island. And that, again, the U.S. airing is on sometimes a different day than it is in other parts, but we do it on the Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern time uh, during the season. Live discussion. I'm on there. So are a lot of our regular patrons, a lot of our Diggin' Oak Island family. So Welsh Dave, come and join us there. And speaking of the Patreon page, I have turned the rest of that post section kind of into my little Oak Island blog. I put up a lot of my past research on the history of the dig and that kind of stuff whenever I get the chance. Um, Again, thank you, Welsh Dave. I can't tell you how much uh, your support means to me. And uh, let me just uh, be the first to say welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. All right. It's time to answer your questions and comments from this week. Uh, And we could start off with the aforementioned Welsh Dave, who wrote, Hey Dave, a super fan from Plymouth, UK here, have been watching the show since its inception and have read about and researched the Oak Island mystery long before the Laginas came on board. Me too, Dave. Uh, The various theories that have been linked to possible treasure have sometimes seemed either implausible, ridiculous, or ludicrous. Having said that, the old adage, no smoke without fire, does beggar the question, was at some time something of value left here for a period of keepsaking, of safekeeping, sorry, keepsaving. I think safekeeping is the key word here. Uh, Despite two decades of treasure hunting, the later years becoming an industrial revolution of digging and drilling. Dave, I think most of the time when I get asked what I think actually happened here or what is going on in Oak Island or what they will find, things like that, my answer, if I'm forced to give one and I'm not sure of any of this, is something like what you said there. Something happened, probably something uh, perhaps clandestine, maybe likely unknown to history, maybe even something that involved at some point a treasure. But I have a very hard, and treasure is a broad word. I don't just mean gold bars and things like that. It could be a treasure of lots of things. But I have a very hard time believing any such treasure is still down there sometimes. Uh, For one, I don't know why you would bury something 100 feet underground and not come back for it. I mean, if it's that valuable that you need to go through that incredibly difficult effort to create such a deep vault and and all the elaborate security that seems to be part of it, if you believe all the theories, then it would also seem just too valuable to leave underground forever. What's the point of that? Sure, there are theories that explain why that might be the case, and, and I get all that, and, and some of them are better than others, and I, and I get that. But when you combine that with the fact that people have come up virtually empty in the search for well over two centuries, those theories start to make less sense. And the idea that anything buried down there has already been removed also kind of explains why searchers are only finding traces of stuff. A little piece of parchment here, maybe a gold shaving, maybe a a bone of some kind. 
the evidence points to something was there, but is not there anymore. And what we are seeing over the years of this hunt is simply evidence. You know, the traces left behind after whatever it was down there was already dug up and removed. If I'm going to try, if if I'm leaning, if my if the evidence brings me to one conclusion, it is that conclusion. That's not a conclusion of who did it. It's not. It doesn't make any many any uh, conclusion on who the depositors were or anything like that. It's just that I, I'm starting to think after all this work that whatever was down there is not there anymore. Whatever this workings, what for whatever purpose these workings were created, that purpose is no longer in use. Now, let's go to our friend Robert, who writes, Hello, my Oak Island friend. I am puzzled. Dropping the cans in the ground and hit bedrock. Firstly, how do they know they hit bedrock? Everything given. Like the idea that a concrete money pit or vault is what they are looking for. The grabber stops bringing anything up. They just say, oh, well, we hit bedrock. Help me understand. What did I miss? As I've said before, you can't just give up before miracles happen. They claimed that they landed on a concrete vault and actually moved it or sank it down. He's right. It goes back a couple of years when they did that. Uh, really, have you ever tried for minutes, uh, for all that matters, the idea you're going to move it? I find it absolutely amazing and a bit ignorant. Objects buried are so much more solid than they understand. To think that if the hammer grab doesn't grab anything and bring it up, that they would just throw up their arms and move somewhere else is like stopping 10 steps in front of the finish line. How is it? They know it's rock and not something important. Come on, let's get so let's get excited about finding a scrap of wood or parchment, but you run into possible concrete vault or something and you just dismiss it. Or tell me, do they think concrete wasn't hard 200 years ago? Everything that was better 200 years ago, the only thing that's different is the amount of time it takes to accomplish tasks now. And today, nothing is done to last 200 years. Love your pod, the true Bobby Dazzler, Robert in Florida. Thank you for that, Robert. Robert, the best thing I can say to you is that the editing, maybe it's the editing. Let's hope the, the, the benefit of the doubt I can give everybody here is let's hope that the editing is what makes us think they just sort of all stand around and say, oh, it's bedrock. Shut it down. You know, I would assume they have a lot more information than just what the guy operating the oscillator happens to think. I mean, I know these guys are expert on these things but not on treasure hunting, right? I mean, how many underground concrete treasure vaults have they actually encountered over their years working this oscillator and hammer grab? It can't be too many, I wouldn't think. You know, People always ask me, why don't they just send a camera down there and actually have a look at what might be there? For all I know, maybe they do, and we just don't get to see it on the show. Because let's face it, bad news is not something the editors like to dwell on much in this show. That much we know for sure. So I can certainly see it's a very good possibility that there is just some other way that they verify that nothing's down there, that they're on bedrock, maybe a camera, maybe something. Who knows what it might be. But they just don't want to show us the process of lowering a camera and getting it ready and everybody standing around looking at a video only to find bedrock, right? They don't want us to do that. What the show always wants us to do, what the editors always want us to do, and this has been true almost from season one, is they want us to go away, even when they disprove something, 
even when something seems insignificant, they still want the viewer to go away with some sort of question in their mind that maybe whatever that was is not insignificant. Does that make sense? So I could see that maybe permeating into this idea to just sort of have a quick scene where everybody stands around and says, oh, no, no, I guess it's bedrock. We're done here. It's just not the Prometheus way of doing things to show us bad news and to show us clearly bad news, right? Anyway, that's the best I can do for you, Robert. It's always great to hear from you. Now, let's go to uh, John who writes, Hello, Dave. I am a Canadian with a long interest in Oak Island ever since doing a 1966 grade five speech on the subject based on a Reader's Digest article. You have been speaking of other Oak Islands in Canada, and I'd like to point out one more. There is yet another Oak Island located off the Bay of Funday in Minas Bay near the town of Grand Prix, Nova Scotia. This Oak Island is actually no longer an island due to dike building to make use of land for farming, but it is still labeled Oak Island on many maps. It is located at the mouth of the Gasparo River, the mouth of the river being just to your right when approaching from the sea. The Mahone Bay Oak Island has the mouth of the Gold River, located just to your right and approaching from the sea. What I find interesting is that if you follow those two rivers inland, the Gasparo River from the Bay of Fundy side and the Gold River from the Atlantic side to their headwaters, you arrive at the village of New Ross. If you remember back to one of the early seasons of the show, the team was investigating a mysterious well that was located in the village of New Ross, where they where there is also reported to be very old rubble, rubble stone foundations. The Celtic word for oak is D-U-I-R, which I think is dire, which can also mean door or right-handedness. It's interesting, two things to me. Could these oak island, oak-covered islands bend signposts leading to the wells and ruins at New Ross? When approaching from the sea, the island of oaks would direct you to look to the right of the door, the river, that runs, the, run, that runs inland to New Ross. Most of the information came from, my, my, from Michael Bradley's book, Holy, Gra- Holy Grail Across the Atlantic, published in 1988. Although I am not a big supporter of the Templar theories, I did find all this fun to ponder. Also, interesting to note that the Gold River, which flows into Mahone Bay, just about two miles north of Oak Island, has seen two small gold rushes in recent historic times, 1870s and 1890s. So the river has been a source of gold. I wonder if this has anything to do with the traces of gold that have been found in the boreholes. Could it be gold from the Gold River that was collected in earlier years, perhaps in the 16th and 17th century, and buried on Oak Island while waiting for transport? Thanks so much for everything you do. Look forward to your podcast every week. Cheers, John. John, um, (laughs) I'm not sure about that question about could it be gold hidden But when you say, um, I wonder if this has anything to do with traces of gold that may have been found in the boreholes, the water in the boreholes, my only response for you has to be, of course it is. You mean to tell me we have a river right there that has had in its history not one to what you call gold rushes. And this is all just a couple of miles away. And we never heard one mention of that when the water testing results came in. You're stunned. You guys on the team are stunned by gold found in water. Yet just over yonder there, it's a river of water with such a history of having gold that it's actually named the Gold River. 
So, no, I don't think it could be gold hidden there, but I think it's very possible to explore whether or not you can put a hole on the mainland and go down to a certain footage amount of feet and see if there's great gold traces in that water. That seems a reasonable thing to do, right? Um, I mean, I, I, in the long run, I don't know if these two things are related or not. I'm not an expert, but it just seems worth mentioning. Don't you think that there is a history of mining gold and a decent amount of it right here, right there, just over there? You could see the river from the island. It certainly seems worth exploring before spending what seems to be tens of millions of dollars trying to dig giant holes to find out more about these test results. It seems at least worth looking into. Now, with regards to your connections to New Ross, uh, I got to tell you, my man, this sounds like the beginning of a theory. It might be time to start doing a little bit more research and looking into this idea of yours. Maybe it's time for you to, uh, you know, for a fellow Canadian to head over to New Ross and do some research for us. <laughs> Keep us posted on whatever you might find. That is really fascinating that those two rivers, both with Oak Islands, end up in New Ross. Uh, anyway, it's a great, great email, man. And thanks to all of you for your emails this week, um, for sending in your comments and questions. That's all we got for this week. And if you want to have your email or your comments discussed here on a future podcast, you can do so by just sending me a, a communication at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Alright, it's time now to discuss Season 9, Episode 19 of The Curse of Oak Island called Shoal Me the Money. That's a rough pun this week, boys. Rough pun. Uh, they threw us a curveball this week on the show. We were expecting the remainder of this season's episodes really to be real heavy on Money Pit stuff. But this week, they kind of surprised us by starting off a new project, which we're going to discuss in the next part. Um, and that project was really the main focus of this week's episode. But... Uh, Let's start today's episode review with the aforementioned money pit anyway. Uh, there was a little bit of work over here. The team is continuing their work on a caisson labeled DH82. And we begin the show with the can at a depth of around 80 feet. Now, just a reminder, this can was placed over the area that marks some of the deepest parts of what we call the Dunfield Crater. Now, I realize I haven't done this in a bit, and I got a couple of uh, requests to do so here to kind of... Uh, do a little review of who Robert Dunfield was and what he did when he was on Oak Island. Um, I know the show has done a great job of explaining this over the last couple of weeks, and we've done this a couple of times, but I think it's a good, this is a good time to do a little bit more of a review before we get into next week's part, next week's episode where we would imagine this can would be finished here. So shortly after the Restall tragedy in 1965, where uh, Robert Restall and his son and other men were killed uh, by gas in, uh, in a shaft, um, a California-based geologist by the name of Robert Dunfield stepped in to become the next Oak Island treasure hunter. Dunfield was from, I think, Denver uh, originally, but uh, he moved to California, and he was interested in Oak Island since he was a boy. It's a very familiar story for many an Oak Island treasure hunter, certainly in the 20th century. Um, Dunfield put together some major investors with lots of money and headed to Oak Island with a plan to bring in some seriously heavy gear with him. I mean, so heavy, in fact, that Robert Dunfield was the guy who actually built the causeway from the mainland to the island that we see now uh, 
for the sole purpose of getting the equipment he wanted to bring over to the money pit. Because before Dunfield, everything anyone used on there, every tool used by treasure hunters had to be small enough, really, to bring over on a boat or a barge. So the biggest things we saw was maybe a couple of diggers, but pumps, things like that. And Dunfield changed all that by, uh, you know, building this causeway and enabling a much more heavy equipment to be brought into the search. I mean, really before that was just shafts and things like that, you know, this was really Robert Dunfield was really the first majorly well-funded search done on Oak Island with the type of heavy equipment never before seen in the history of the dig. Sound familiar? It should. Uh, everyone who dug before him, like I said, dug kind of just shafts to look for the treasure, right? Just a slightly large hole in the ground that goes straight down. They used, you know, shovels, essentially, <laughs> but with giant cranes and big bulldozers, Dunfield got to work digging what was the largest crater the money pit had ever seen. If anybody ever, you ever hear anybody say, why don't they just strip mine the whole area? Well, Dunfield was the first one to think that way and the first one to give that a try and really the only one. And it is his legacy of destroying the money pit that has kept others since then from trying it again. But it wasn't easy what he was doing. His, his idea of building this giant crater, it was not an easy task to say the least, which is another reason why people haven't tried it since. As he dug, he faced what was could only be described as an unending task of clearing out dirt that came from the sides of the crater, sort of caving in as he dug further and further down. He would like work for a day, dig a few feet down, and then wake up in the morning with like half of his work covered again from dirt and debris that just sort of sloughed off the sides of the pit that he was digging. And if it ever rained, yikes. What a mess that must have made for him and his men, you know. Now, eventually, Dunfield made his way down to the deepest depth of right around 140 feet, according to records, at the center of what was a cone-shaped crater, cone-shaped hole, and he just couldn't get any further. The gear started failing. The crater became a predictably unstable mess. I mean, you could have figured that out before it even tried, and soon Dunfield ended up closing up shop and he went back to California to sort of count his losses, you know? So the hope for the fellowship now with this is maybe Dunfield just didn't go deep enough. Or maybe he just missed the mark. He was in the wrong spot. What we do know is that the team is not digging at the exact center of the Dunfield crater, which is one of the reasons why I explained all that to you. Like I said, Dunfield went as deep as 140 feet. Yet the team is telling us here during this dig that they expect the backfill from the Dunfield crater because <laughs> Dunfield was interested in one thing. He was interested in finding the treasure. All the searcher shafts, all the wood, all the dating from all of that, none of that meant anything to him. He just bulldozed his way through it, put it in a big pile off the hole, and then when he realized he couldn't go any further, he just bulldozed it all back right, <laughs> pushed it all right back into the hole, you know, just like you would uh, <laughs> destroy a sandcastle. That's kind of what he did, just built, built it, threw it all right back into the hole. So what they expect to find is backfill from what he did there. And what they're telling us is they expect to only find it to around 85 feet. So what we are doing here, what we're seeing them do here is in fact 
digging down what we would call one of the sides of the Dunfield Crater and certainly not right down the middle of it. And it seems the team was right about that prediction because just below 80 feet or so, they start talking about how they're hitting what they call undisturbed ground. Now, later on in the hammer grab starts approaching 90 feet or so, and and then Gary starts metal detecting. He finds like a cribbing spike in the spoils from these uh, hammer grabs. And then later he finds, you know, what I would call the business end of a tool that looks a lot like it might be off maybe an old pickaxe or something like that. Now, that was the end of the work done for this week. And we didn't see any follow-up on either of these two things. we got to keep that in mind moving forward. The producers are certainly trying to extend this work out over several episodes. That is pretty obvious. And that clearly is what we're seeing this week. As throughout this episode, I think the caisson really only went down you know, a few feet throughout the entire hour of the show. Uh, which they always try to tell us is like a week long. You know, <laughs> I'd imagine we're going to see much more of DH82 in next week's episode. Now, before we leave the money pit, I want to mention a great comment during the live discussion of the episode over on the Patreon page by our friend Jeff, who wrote, it's amazing to think back to when they would send divers down those holes looking for the money pit. As unstable as those caverns are with the mud and water, that was stunningly dangerous. Geez, Jeff, it really was, right? I can't help thinking if sending a diver down one of these cans is even possible should the possibility ever arise. You know, is that even an idea, even a chance? But I'm definitely getting way ahead of myself here, right? Because first, I would think they need to find something worth looking at. All right, so this week's show is actually dominated by lots four and eight, which we have seen before. And uh, like I said, it was something of a curveball for the viewer here. Dan on the Patreon said it best when he said, quote, interesting uh, that with such a focus in the money pit, they decided to add this to this year's search. Although this looks like it's early on before the cans based on the weather. I did go back after you uh, wrote that, Dan, after the show was over, went back and watched it again, and I think you're right. It does seem like this is um, sort of midsummer, you know, as opposed to late September, which is what it looks like over at the Money Pit. Uh, so they did make a conscious effort to put this, the editors, to put this project into the can section of the show uh, again, probably to spread that out over the course of a bunch of weeks. Uh, Brian on the Patreon also took a different approach. He said, quote, one thing that has been bothering me about the show is that the show is that the offshore focus seems so left turn, almost like they are needing to show us something shiny on one hand. So we forget about the mundane item. In the other, are they truly running out of steam at the money pit and with the other areas that we need a new area to get a few more episodes out of? I wonder. Now, those are all good questions, Brian. I think you might be onto something. I don't know if it means it's mundane. I just think they wanted to be able to make the caisson section a larger part of the show. And there just is, you know, the thing about the caissons is there's just not much to look at. You put down these big cans, you bring out a bunch of dirt. Gary Metal detects nine times out of 10, he finds nothing. This stuff goes into a wash plant. You find nothing but wood and that kind of stuff. And it just doesn't make for an hour long show. So you have to kind of talk about some other stuff and bring in some other things. My guess is over the course of the remainder, main episodes of this season, we might even see a crackpot session, right? We might see a theory session or something like that, because those are the kind of things that you sprinkle in to uh, to kind of remind everybody of just how interesting this island really is. 
Now, these two areas in question here, lots four and eight, are both on the western side of the island where the team was looking earlier this season for the supposed hatch indicated on Zena Halpern's map. They bring into the interpretive center two guys from a company called CSR Geo Survey Limited. His names are Colin Toole and Taylor Pierce. They are on the island to do an underwater survey of the waters just off the north shore of the island using something called a magnetometer. Basically, they are just using a huge underwater metal detector to see what might be down there. If I'm not mistaken, this technique is used by lots of people who are looking for like shipwrecks and those sorts of things, right? Like I said, excuse me, the area they are looking at here in this survey is off the northern side of the island, which is strange to me. I mean, this is not near Smith's Cove, and it's also the complete opposite side of the island from the swamp, where earlier this season, we saw a whole scene where the team might have found possibly a wharf that extends from the swamp out into the bay. It's also the very opposite side of the island from Dan Blankenship's ice holes. Now, if you don't know what I mean by that, let me explain. Back in 1979, I think it was, Dan Blankenship was working at a hole, at the hole that he built called 10X, and he was working in the middle of an incredibly cold winter, so cold that Mahome Bay froze over. It only does that very seldomly, and it did this year. Now, if nothing else, man, Dan was committed to work in that kind of cold in the middle of winter. Jeez. Dan discovered that as he worked the pumps to clear out the water in 10X, four, I think it was, holes began to form in the ice just off the southern shore of the island, making him think that 10X was somehow connected to some feature out there off the beach. And like I said, weirdly, they're searching on the opposite side of the island, where the only evidence they seem to produce for doing such a search is a rather, how do I put this, unreliably sourced map, questionably sourced map. Um, But be that as it may, this is the plan. Now, during the time between coming up with the magnetometer plan and actually showing it to us on the show, Gary and Marty are metal detecting over on lot eight. Gary finds a strange-looking piece of a metal chain. He concludes it must be part of a uh, bit from a horse's bridle. Now, here's another weird thing that was worth mentioning. Marty then starts talking about how weird it is to find evidence of a horse over here in an area off the island, uh, on this area of the island, uh, which he says was an area where no farming was done. Now, I, I do hope at some point off camera, someone mentioned or reminded these guys that horses were not used exclusively for farming. <laughs> You know, just because there's not, there wasn't farming done over there doesn't mean there wasn't a horse over there. Anyway, later in the episode, they find another piece of iron, which uh, Gary and Marty seem to think must have been part of a tool of some kind. I think they may even opine that it was part of an ads or an axe or something. But honestly, it was impossible to tell for sure really what it was from what we're seeing here. And again, just like the artifacts from the money pit, we had no follow up on either of these finds. So let's keep an eye out if we do later on down the road, get some sort of follow-up on that. If not, folks, you know what I always say, silence says it all. It means these artifacts were simply not very important. So let's go now back to the underwater survey we were talking about before. We see Tony Sampson back on the island. He's sort of the resident diver in the area, and he also runs some boat tours of Oak Island for uh, people visiting the area. You can see the name of those tours right there on a shirt called Salty Dog Tours. You can look them up. And the boat we see him taking the team out on here is actually one of the very same boats he uses for guests of those tours. 
It's a small kind of pontoon boat with not too many passengers. So I got to imagine this must be a really cool tour, especially if you got Tony doing the uh, doing the guided tour part, doing on, you know on the wheel here as captain. Um, it's definitely on my to do list if and when I ever actually make it up to Nova Scotia to Mahone Bay. Colin Tool from the CSR team uh, rejoins the guys. They launch the magnetometer off Tony's boat. It gives them some ferrous metal hits, meaning iron, in a couple of places, one being just off Samuel Ball's property. And this made me think, man, the show has really all but ignored that work, don't you think? I was super excited to see what Laird Niven's labor over at the Samuel Ball home site might have come up with this season after seeing so much of it last year. Hopefully we will get to see that maybe in the episodes to come this season, but I got to be honest with you, I have my doubts about that. Uh, there was also another really large hit on the magnetometer later on as well that should be interesting to see what that might be from. You know, I mean, if nothing else, there's probably shipwrecks and things in this area. Now, after they conclude their work, everyone meets up in the war room to discuss the findings. And uh, Colin Toole and Tony Sampson present the guys with a map that shows where all the hits from the magnetometer were found. The big one they're most excited about is over on Frog Island. This is a little uninhabited island off the northeastern side of Oak Island, nearest to the Money Pit area. The island is straight ahead of Smith's Cove, but the hit they're focusing on is a little more to the north, kind of you know north northeast of the Money Pit. If I have my bearings correct with this, with all of this, um, and they also talk about another one just to the west, just uh, just just off of Lot Eight, over by the Samuel Ball property. Um, the outcome of this war room meeting is pretty obvious. Tony Sampson is going to dive down and get a better look at what these two hits might actually be. And it seems as though they're going to be doing that within these coming episodes. But I want to give you guys all this little cautionary note here. The dive could be very interesting. And Tony is great on camera. He's great at keeping things exciting. But they do not have permission to do pretty much anything underwater besides looking around and taking some video images. Even if they find something that looks mysterious, looks out of place, looks crazy, you know, Canada's laws are very, very clear on this. They are not allowed to just pull it up. Whatever they find down there stays down there until they can get permission from the government to do more. And this is nothing new. This has always been the case on Oak Island, and it's the basic reason why so little searching has ever been done in the waters off Oak Island. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Uh, don't forget, I'm on uh, as a DJ on WDVR-FM. You can find me every Wednesday from 2 to 5 p.m., uh, spinning some tunes from two to four. We do a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro, where we play you the music of New Orleans. Uh, and then from four to five, I do a show called Island Vibes, where I do kind of you know music with a little tropical vacationy feel. You can listen in uh, nor uh, Western Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania on eighty nine point seven FM or ninety point five FM, or you could just go to wdvrfm.org and listen there. It's also on the TuneIn app. You can just tell Alexa to turn on WDVR. Apparently. Um, and don't forget, uh, I have another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions where me and my friend Chris Poe sit down and talk about whatever we want to talk about. There's some really cool stuff there recently, a lot of music, paranormal, you know, that kind of stuff. So go check that out. Uh, it's, you can get that on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. And don't forget, if you 
like our show and you want to help us out, you can do so by becoming a patron. If you think this wor- show is worth $5 a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more on how you can help. And if you don't want to do it that way, you can certainly help us out by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thank you, everyone, for doing that. I really do appreciate it. I really do appreciate the kind words and for you taking the time to do that. Uh, don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook or Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. If you want to have a notification from when new uh, new podcasts come up, they will be on there. I use the Facebook page more, and whenever I get pictures or things I want to show you, I usually put it there on the Facebook page. So if you're a Facebook uh, member, come and join us over there. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you could do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I might just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want that, if you don't want me to read it aloud and all that kind of stuff, just make a note of that for me on the email and I'll do my best to answer you directly. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.